Fiona, welcome. Um, this is the third in uh, a three-program uh, series of iViews coming through courtesy of iNews, um, which rhymes quite nicely. <laughs> uh, we're covering a number of aspects in terms of um, retinal conditions, uh, specifically around the macula and macular degeneration, but more broadly, the different perspectives and the different views of folk involved in care mm -hmm. and um, those at the receiving end. So we've had conversations with ophthalmologists, uh, with our patient representative, Malcolm, who you know well. Yep. And so the purpose of today is to get a bird's eye view of what goes on in the high street and um, arguably the most difficult challenge in seeing healthy people, less than healthy people, um, in large numbers in a very short period of time mm -hmm. and then trying to balance both the business and clinical curiosity and professional satisfaction. So that is the backdrop, Fiona. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, uh, hopefully there'll be more than just the one listener. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself, Fiona. Um, so I am an ophthalmologist. Uh, no, I'm not. Sorry. Well, you could be an ophthalmologist. <laughs> I, 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 as a Freudian slip. Yeah. I, mean, well, I mean, that is an interesting question. Um, there's ophthalmology a temptation, medicine just generally? Never. No. Wow. Yeah, so how did you get into optometry? Um, I actually, probably when I was about 13 or 14, um, when in Scotland you start sort of picking your... Uh, subjects in school and start thinking about careers mm. um, and the boy who sat next to me in class said he wanted to be a dentist and I thought yeah. I can't think of anything worse than being <laughs> a dentist <laughs> I absolutely hate going to the dentist but I quite like going to the optician okay. um, so I did some work experience uh, and really enjoyed it Yeah. Uh, and so that kind of led me down that path so I mean I think there's there's sometimes a bit of a misconception that people fall back on some of the more kind of allied health professionals because they mm. didn't get into medicine mm. which is not the case there's there's many there are some people who, who go down that route um but for many it's just that's what we're motivated to do I, I, and um i enjoy the kind of primary care aspect yeah. uh, of it that's fascinating so it never um was mentioned at my careers um, advisory chat at school. Yeah. I think my mum told the careers advisor there are only three options. And um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think good for you. And you went to Glasgow Caledonian University. Yes, I did. Okay. And um, enjoy that experience? Did it make you regret not becoming a dentist or an <laughs> ophthalmologist? Uh, no, Caledonian is a great place uh, to study. Um, it, in fact, I liked it so much that I now go back there and supervise the students in the clinic. Um, it's a, a really nice mix of sort of the practical and the, the theoretical, um, which is optometry and, and actually all healthcare professions are kind of strange in that you have to, you do have to have that kind of book smart and uh, particularly with optometry, you have to have a knowledge of physics and this sort of thing, but you also have to, be quite personable and be able to mm -hmm. talk to patients all day mm -hmm. uh, and those things uh, it's not a, 
not a overly common mix to have, you know, excel in all, in both of those aspects. But um, certainly, all the optometrists I know mm-hmm. uh, seem to do well in uh, that. Having uh, that kind of knowledgeable background, but also, uh, you know, the knowledge is nothing without being able to communicate it to your patients. Absolutely, it's a real key skill, and not everybody has it. But you have it in droves. I, I worked <laughs> with you for a couple of years, and. Um, uh, it's clear that uh, being a natural communicator is one of your many talents. So um, I don't think it'd be rude to my previous guests, ophthalmologists, and um, Malcolm, who I think by background was a physicist, mm-hmm. um, but certainly is a very good communicator. Uh, it wouldn't be rude to them to say that you're by far, in a way, the youngest guest we've had on this series of um, three iViews podcasts. Mm-hmm. You told me you were a zillennial, which yes. was news to me. Um, <laughs> so that sits between millennial and Gen and Z, kind of okay. straddle the straddle the two. Yeah, yeah. And so, it, as a, an optometry zillennial, yeah, you have um, a unique perspective because when I, I'm a baby boomer, um, which is back in the mists of time. And babies were booming, I suppose, uh, <laughs> which is how we got our name. Um, the um, the interaction between optometry and ophthalmology um, was a little bit fraught. And uh, traditionally, there, there wasn't as much joint working as there is now. Um, do you think that's because it's been driven by uh, zillennials? <laughs> and um, the, the zillennials see this as being an important thing to evolve, progress and just develop further? Um, I think communication between the specialties, it, it definitely is improving. Um, part of that is that technology has improved. You know, mm. we have electronic referrals, which means that, you know, we can send imaging and, uh, you know, clinical records across instantaneously uh, and, and have these triaged, which uh, obviously helps. Um, certainly I think COVID moved it on a lot as well. Um, there's a lot more um, cross management of patients uh, across, you know, the hospital, primary care uh, and the GPs as well. Um, and, you know, the, these things like virtual clinics and, and things like that, a lot of that uh, was in the works anyway, but it certainly accelerated by the pandemic um, but yeah, I mean, the demographics of optometry are changing. You look at the the Association of Optometrists um, workforce analysis. Previously, um, it was a very male-dominated profession. Um, there's sort of the maybe stereotypical view of, of uh, any kind of primary care health provider is sort of a, a an old white man with white hair and a white coat mm-hmm. um, and certainly that's not op- optometry today. There, certainly there are still those who fit that description and are excellent practitioners uh, and a vital part of uh, the optometry community but it's certainly becoming more female, uh, younger and um, more ethnically diverse as well. Yeah, terrific to hear. And and so that, that was your um, very pithy description of um, a standard optometrist or uh, as they used to be or maybe still are currently and what what was the perception of the ophthalmologist from the optometric point of view how would you have characterized us inverted <laughs> um i i certainly don't want to put words in the mouth of the whole profession um but yeah i guess maybe um 
the, there's maybe a perception, obviously, it takes a lot longer to study and, and do all the training and qualify to be an ophthalmologist and, and you're very highly specialised in the area in which you practice. And so um, certainly there's a looking up to ophthalmology, which which does, uh, of course, still happen because, um, you know, you're our respected colleagues. Um, but I think it, it is more a view of colleagues in that sort of collegiate way of working now than, than maybe it has been in the past. Um, and some of that is helped with the eye care system in Scotland. We're able to manage and co-manage patients in the community so much more than, than previously. So rather than having to sort of refer to the hospital in, in you know many, many instances, a lot of the time we're able to keep the patient in the community whether that is managing them as a standalone if you feel confident doing so and you have the appropriate training or whether that's in a in a co-management with the hospital but but Mm. avoiding a kind of unnecessary travel and appointments for patients yeah yeah um now i think that evolution i've certainly seen it uh transform in my working lifetime and it's delightful to see and um it's been a long time coming um but in terms of um, your desire not to be a medic, sitting next to that lad who wanted to—is he a dentist now? Incidentally, hey, I've no idea. <laughs> what was his name? Surely remembers. Um, it was Ryan something. Ryan, I Ryan, if you're listening, <laughs> get in touch. Uh, we want to know which dental practice you're working at. <laughs> could have, could be a DJ in Ibiza now. You never know. Um, uh, so uh, having decided not to uh, become a medic, um, you're doing a lot of the stuff that medics do in terms of healthcare, healthcare prevention and prevention of um, problems and progressive diseases. And you're seeing a whole um, load of people yep. who uh, you're sharing the care with hospital departments. So. In that sense, you have evolved into something that you didn't really want to become, at least as part of your job. So how does that sit with you? Um, well, for me, the uh, and I think the way that the profession is going, you know, previously it was quite refraction-based. Mm. Obviously, refraction is a very important part of our job. Um, but the way technology is going, I, I think at some point probably refraction in non-complex patients may be taken over by some form of technology or machine Um, and so it is really important for the profession to um, continue to expand our scope into that healthcare region um, and you know make sure that we are providing care as we should be in that kind of primary care Mm. role. Because I think it's been a gap that hasn't really been filled in previous times Um, certainly preventing disease is a hell of a lot better than yeah, trying to close the door after the horse has bolted. So that, exactly. um, I, I think carving out a niche is very much needed um, pretty across the board. So um, just extending that a little bit further and bearing in mind that you have taken on at least part of the mantle of the medic in that sense or the public health um, eye care professional, uh, where do you see research sitting in that? Because um, you probably were exposed to some degree of research at the Glasgow Caledonian University. You probably had to do some research um, after that. And I know that you're doing a master's. 
I've just um, finished it. I submitted my thesis two weeks ago. Fantastic. What was the title of your thesis? Um, a distribution of optometry practices across urban rural locations in Scotland, implications for equity. Oh, great. Um, because you were going to do it on macular degeneration. Yes. But then there were too many hurdles. Uh, yes, some uh, bureauc- bureaucracy got in the way of uh, doing that that initial project in the kind of time scale um, of the the masters so I switched um, I work in rural practices quite a lot Mm. uh, as a locum um, and there are some very specific challenges that are faced in that environment Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt being able to bring that perspective uh, into uh, what's known about uh, optometry access was was quite important because it's um, not as well studied as maybe some other um, issues in equity of access yeah. to eye care at the moment. Absolutely, you have to send me a copy of the thesis. Anyway, uh, well done on doing that. So um, you've certainly got the the itch um, of the research question that you want to scratch uh, in the sense of both your master's and, and also some of the work you're doing. You, you mentioned, though, before we talk about that, um, you work in locum. Yeah. As a locum. So why are you working as a locum? Is it better money? Is it more flexibility? Um, you just don't fancy being pinned down in a, a high street chain? <laughs> um, so I've worked uh, as a res- what we call a resident optometrist. So that would be an employed optometrist um, for um, chains in the past. I worked for Specsavers for many years. Mm. Uh, I've worked for independent practices. Um, I found for me locuming, helped me give a kind of balance between uh, the different things that I wanted to do. So I enjoy being in practice, um, but I also enjoy uh, the sort of teaching and clinical supervision I do at at Caledonian University. um, And um, obviously in the last couple of years joined uh, the University of Edinburgh Mm. uh, as a research optometrist. uh, And so it allows that kind of flexibility to do... um, all these different things that I enjoy doing. Yeah, it's brilliant because you, you're making the most of every opportunity, and I think that's laudable. Um, so, as uh, as far as you can generalise, uh, do you think you're uh, typical of the millennial optometrist? Because not everybody either sees research as being vital or important or driving service quality. Um, do you think you're an outlier, or do you think? you typify your generation so i think uh, certainly from you know the the friends and colleagues that i went to university with um a lot of us are looking for something a little bit beyond just sitting in the test room saying Mm. one or two all Mm. day which is very very important but um you know you can see it in the number of optometrists taking on additional qualifications they're doing their independent prescribing or uh, master's degrees or, or whatever it may be um, and there certainly is a bit more flexibility and people may be wanting to work in the hospital part-time and work in community or high street practice part-time um, or you know becoming an, an assessor for the, the college of optometrists so there's definitely um, you know people are looking for that something a bit beyond um, just yeah. the kind of everyday uh, routine um, and I think optometry is a great profession for that there are so many things that you can do um, to sort of expand uh, the scope of what you're doing uh, maybe more so than you might think with such a, a highly specialised profession Yeah, oh no that's, that's great to hear 
Um, and of course, uh, you could say that being a locum means that when you prescribe specs and the customer isn't happy, you're not going to be there <laughs> next time around. I mean, that, that, I, I do but jest, but, but one of the um, bugbears um, that I think every ophthalmologist sitting in hospital have is that um, uh, patients, understandably, and I'd probably be the same, um, take along uh, numerous pairs of spectacles, which are then emptied out onto the desk and um, and folk do say, you know, the, I can't see with these and I spent a fortune on them. Uh, so, well, I, I was going to ask you, um, I suppose in a slightly teasing way, what, what do we do about that? Do we just uh, tell individuals like that to, well, there's, go and see your optometrist, uh, locum or not? So ultimately, yeah, if the spectacles aren't working, then, um, you know, the person should be visiting their, their optical practice. Um, I tend to work in the same places all the time as the locum, so I usually do get to follow up with my patients. <laughs> <laughs> Does that happen a lot, though? Um, so if you're a locum, you still have responsibility to, to look after yeah. your patient and follow up. So even mm. if you did one day in a practice, if you're, let's say, referring someone, you, you need to be following up on making sure that that person's been looked after. Okay. Um, so what I've been saying is, yes. uh, go and get a refund. That won't be an issue. Is, <laughs> uh, is that so, right? Or so is definitely, if there's something that's not feeling quite right with the glasses, then uh, going back to where uh, they were supplied, um, they should be able to sort it out, whether that is sometimes it's as simple as, you know, maybe the varifocals aren't sitting quite right on the face, they need a simple adjustment. Sometimes it's a case of um, rechecking the prescription. Mm. You know, it is a subjective measure and sometimes adjustments need to be made from that side of things. Um, or sometimes it's just that maybe there wasn't the correct communication uh, there yeah. and uh, particularly with people who have pathology or uh, certain eye disease it, it is about managing the expectations of what what level of vision um is it is achievable and, and making sure that we're getting the best vision that we can do um but sometimes understanding that there's a, a limit to that and um i would never want a patient to go home and and think that they'd sort of been fleeced into buying a pair of glasses that don't work um if if that's the case then Often it's an indicator that the communication is broken down at some point in that patient journey. Sure. Well, um, I think it's very well put. Um, I'll, I'll remember that for next time <laughs> and not claim that they can get a refund instantly. Um, so the um, it, it kind of highlights, I suppose, expectations of the general public, most of whom I'd imagine, although I don't know, attending your practice will be relatively healthy. And we'll have an optical problem that can be corrected with spectacles. Yeah. Um, but some of them won't be, which is absolutely the reverse in a hospital scenario yeah. where um, if somebody comes in and there's absolutely nothing wrong, that's very much a rarity these days because they get pre-screened and they get yeah. referred as you described. And the referral pathways are now um, very effective. So that that is a difficult thing to balance. Um, one person might have glaucoma coming in um, with um, advanced visual field loss and the next person will be saying, I don't like my day medner average <laughs> spectacle frames. What are you going to do about that? I mean, that that, that is a tough gig, isn't it? Yeah, so um, I think it, it's absolutely right that you, sh you shouldn't be getting perfectly normal, healthy patients in the hospital. That's what primary mm. care is for, is to, to 
screen these patients out and, and make sure we're making efficient use of, of the health service. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's certainly essentially the biggest challenge of any primary care practitioner is that most of your patients are going to be relatively healthy, relatively normal findings on your tests. And you have to stay alert to those very subtle early signs of disease so that you can pick it up at, at the early stage and, and not just get into the routine of mm. doing the same thing and making sure that, um, you know, these things are being detected. And um, it, certainly with in, increasing use of technology and um, all the different pieces of equipment and things that we have available to us now, that, that certainly makes things uh, easier in, in that respect. And we are able to detect things at these kind of earlier and earlier stages. Yeah, yeah, because having said that most people are generally healthy, given enough time in the vagaries uh, and the fortunes and the misfortunes of genetics and the environment, um, eventually a good number of folk are going to develop something one way or another. And it's that identification and a desire to learn more about what the future holds for individuals at a point when something might be done that has driven the project that brought us together, Fiona. (laughs) So um, tell us about the project that we're doing together. So we work on a project called SCUN, which is the Scottish Collaborative Optometry Ophthalmology Network eResearch. That's why it has an acronym, because we can't say that all the time. Um, So essentially, um, we are harnessing uh, the power of the retinal images that are captured by optometrists in Scotland every day in their practices uh, and using that to find out more about the links between the eyes and the general health, uh, find out more about how we can detect eye disease at an earlier stage uh, and how we can predict the progression of disease uh, once it has been diagnosed. That's a very good summary. And um, in terms of uh, what the nuts and bolts of that looks like, it, it's a retrieval uh, process, having gone through a number of really stringent um, rules and regulations and ethical approvals and codicot. Yeah, absolutely. So the um the governance surrounding a project of this nature is always going to be extremely strict. Um, as you mentioned, we've taken advice from the Caldecott Guardians. Um, you know, we have a co-sponsorship from uh, NHS Lothian and from the University of Edinburgh and all the safeguards that that brings. Uh, and we're operating within uh, NHS Scotland's uh, National Safe Haven, uh, sorry, Public Health Scotland's National Safe Haven, uh, which means that um, there's very sort of strict security measures and um, governance requirements, ethics requirements uh, to do work of this nature. Essentially, um, we are retrieving retinal images from community optometry practices. They have been captured in some practices for 10, 15, even 20 years in some places and um, Obviously, it's impossible to go around and ask every individual patient, can we use, can we put your photo in this national safe haven? Uh, and so uh, going through this kind of strict governance and things like the public benefit privacy panel uh, approval, which we received in October 2021, uh, means that uh, the benefits uh, to the public from the project are, are so 
high the potential benefits that um, as long as we have these very strict uh, stringent safeguards in place um, we're allowed to do uh, pseudonymized research uh, on these images meaning that there's no personal identifiers available mm. and um, so we've brought together uh, a number of individuals um, present company accepted um, who are going to be able to scrutinize that data using um, AI mm-hmm. and deep learning and so being a millennial you'll be familiar <laughs> with these terms and coding and um, digital information and health informatics or is it or is this all new did you learn the basics at Glasgow Caledonian University or were you picking it up on the job um, so I definitely knew some things about uh, AI previously but mostly just kind of what's in in the news mm. um, once you start looking into AI you realize that it's kind of already everywhere it's in agriculture it's in factories it, it's in many healthcare professions already almost everything you do on your smartphone has some form of deep learning algorithm uh, within it um, and so uh, but really how AI works how it how it learns um, is something that I learned more about after I joined Schoon certainly because um, I think it's really important if we are um, you know creating these hopefully creating these tools to help optometrists and, and eye care professionals with their uh, clinical management of patients, um, it, that it's not a kind of black box that just mm-hmm. gives them out an answer. We can actually explain uh, to the practitioners, you know, how how do we get to this point? How does this actually work? Because then they're going to have a lot more trust in the, the results that, that the inf- and the information that they're being given from these tools. Yeah, and uh, in that sense... Um, if we could turn the clock back, maybe would have written our curricula at school differently or our university uh, learning differently. But certainly this is going to be transformative in terms of how we can um, enable our diagnostic capability through AI tools to recognise and, and crystal ball gaze to predict different outlooks for individuals, whether they're healthy well, they have one or more comorbidities, and I think that'll that'll change how we practice. Do you not think? Definitely. I mean, you think how much uh, you know the technology we have now has changed. You know, practice in the last twenty years or so. You know, we we went from being able to look at the retina with a direct ophthalmoscope mm. um, and having that very uh, limited sort of two two dimensional field of view to now uh, we have you know colour fundus photography, we have OCT, we have ultra wide mm. field imaging, you know, and these are available in the high street. It's, you know, you can uh, many community practices, all of them will have a, a certainly a fundus camera, a retinal camera, but many will have OCT mm. uh, and ultra wide field imaging as well. And the we've really only scratched the surface of what uh, what these images can can tell us. Um, you know, the information about Yes, diagnosis of eye disease um, and managing patients that way, but also the associations with the general health. Um, and increasingly, um, you know, optometrists, we're understanding the role we have in primary care, not only just for the eyes, but also as um, kind of the, the canary in the coal mine for some other, uh, you know, health conditions, whether it be diabetes or 
hypertension or um, even neurodegeneration. Yeah, so it's going to enable a whole new Pandora's box in some ways of likely diagnoses, which whether you're healthy or whether you've entered a phase where you're getting one or more conditions, um, you're going to be able to take a look at what might be the case if we continue the lifestyle as, that we're continuing and we um, take active measures, I'd guess, to try and prevent the uh, awful or the more awful scenarios and veer towards the better scenarios, I think. That would be enabling. I mean, what, what's your take on how that can be delivered in the high street in terms of advice yeah, uh, so on behaviour, for example? So um, certainly with things like uh, AMD, um, particularly dry uh, macular degeneration at the moment, it is very much lifestyle advice-based uh, uh, information that we're mm. giving. And often it is difficult um, for a patient to quantify their own risk um, you know, the risk of progression or, you know, the risk of sight loss. It, it's kind of an abstract thing and people don't really like to think that bad things will happen to them. So mm-hmm. they probably downplay their own risk profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly do it with other health conditions. This is not uh, something, um, you know, it's something that everyone does. Yeah. Um, and so being able to quantify that risk um and really give tailored advice um, to our patients is is going to be um, incredibly useful. Um, but as you know, all AI tools they're only ever as good as the data that they're trained on, and that's why Scoon is is so important because it's primary care uh, mm-hmm. Im- data. It's images captured in community optometry practice. So any outputs we have from the research and any uh, tools that come from it are going to be highly relevant to um, that setting because it is, it's a true reflection of, of the population that, that we see. Absolutely. And it, in a way, it democratises the data that's being derived from individuals and feeding it back to individuals yeah. so they recognise um, the state of play and are offered advice, guidance, sometimes treatment and what to do about it. Um so it's a very exciting prospect, and I guess it feeds back to your master's uh, project um, in a way, because in order to um, have a representative view, we need urban, rural, wide uptake, and the landscape in terms of optometry, um, in terms of accessibility, I guess is a bit variable, particularly in rural locations and certain parts of yeah, Scotland. so um, the... Uh, with um, optometry in Scotland since 2006, it, it has been NHS funded, meaning that everyone uh, who lives in Scotland can get a free eye examination. Hmm. Um, this is very different from the rest of the UK, where some uh, risk profiles such as you know age or family history or diabetes will, will allow you to have a free eye examination, but the vast majority of people uh, pay for them. And the removal of that cost cost barrier has um, improved the uh, accessibility of eye care services for certain sectors of the population Um, the the spread of practices across across areas of deprivation is actually fairly equal in Scotland although there's still some uh, work to do on the uptake uh, of eye exams uh, between different different groups Um, but certainly urban rural um, you know it's, it's 
as with all healthcare specialties, rural uh, is underserved in terms of number of practitioners um, and um, without the backup of the specialist care services that we have in the, the urban areas, a lot of time these uh, the practitioners in these areas are working um, very, very hard doing uh, going sort of above and beyond for their patients because often they are the, mm. the only ones there to deal with it. Um, and so there's certainly um, a lot of work has been done to improve that equity of access um, to eye care in Scotland, but um, there's still further work which which could be done to, to mm-hmm. improve it even further and make sure that we have actually universal uh, eye care. Yeah, yeah, I think it's laudable that, that Scotland did implement that. And um, I agree, the unsung heroes in oral practices who are working far beyond any contracted hours, whether independents or chains, do re- do require and deserve um, a big thumbs up. So when nearing the end of our time, Paul is waving his hands madly at me. I, I just want to um, uh, finish by saying what a delight and a pleasure it has been chatting to you about a number of things. I know that... Um, you do actually enjoy a very healthy lifestyle. You ride a bike, you surf, and um, I dare say you occasionally do other things. What what gets you out of bed in the morning? That's a final question. Um, my 15-year-old dog uh, wakes me up at 6 o'clock Excellent. every morning. Excellent. Uh, so <laughs> long, a very regular alarm clock on right, that one. Long may that continue. Anyway, Fiona, thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. <laughs>